Well, if you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. You should have a handout. I, I alluded to some of these uh, stats last week, but recent Gallup polls are uh, maybe not surprising to you. I find them a little bit alarming. 89% believe in, and I wrote God in lowercase as well, because that's very broad. Uh, this is just random people they've asked. 72% believe in angels. 71% believe in heaven. I thought that was intriguing. Uh, all right. Uh, 64% believe in hell, and only 61% believe in Satan. I know there's a variety of reasons for that, but undoubtedly life's disappointments uh, do have us question our theology. Uh, in fact, that's what Peter is addressing here, the false teachers. Uh, the false teachers have capitalized on life's difficulties, life's curveballs, and they're, they're, they're making their, their message very enticing. How can you really know God said these things? How do you know God is really involved in this world? And we looked a little bit at that last week. Peter comes back to it again in this section in dealing with judgment and whether or not God really is involved or is the old man that wound the clock and that's it, you know. Uh, that's, that's what he is going to address here in the text. So let's look at this, starting in verse 8. Now, dear friends, and the, the, the dear friends goes back to verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, in the Greek here, we have the word de, which is bringing us back to what has already been said. So in verse 6 or 7, he talks about this day of judgment that's coming. He's, it's kind of like, in light of that, dear friends, let me tell you something. And he says, do not let this one thing escape your notice, that a single day, and watch this, it's like, it's a comparison. He's trying to draw this. Uh, there's been theologians that argue that the, the six days of creation is really like a thousand, or is, is a thousand years. It's not what it, no, 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 that has no context here. He's trying to state a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years are like a single day. In other words, the Lord is not slow concerning His promise. What's the promise? We'll get to that in a minute. He's already talked about it. As some regard slowness, but is being patient towards you. Why? Here's the reason. Because He does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. I wrote in my text here, amazing. God of the universe <laughs> wishes that none should perish. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was God, there'd be a lot of piles of rocks everywhere. You know, like the lady that worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken yesterday. But anyway, we won't go there, right? Are you serious? Uh, but anyway, the day of the Lord will come. Here it is, the day of the Lord. We've talked about that frequently Peter has because the day of the Lord is a period of judgment. That's the future judgment uh, when God is going to unleash His wrath upon the unrighteous and He's going to bring salvation, vindicate the, the righteous, right? A day that is to come. Uh, and it will come, he says, like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a hor horrific noise. That word is very rare in Greek. It's not used elsewhere in the New Testament. It could be a hissing sound like a group of snakes. It could be thunder, or it could be the crackling of fire, which is probably the case, as we see here, the celestial bodies, it says, will melt away in a blaze. 
and the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. Since all these things are to melt away, it's repeated that phrase, it'll repeat it a third time in verse 12, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolve, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. In other words, where God resides. That's what he's saying. And all those who have been made righteous through Christ. Let's unpack this text because he's addressing those questions of why hasn't the Lord intervened? Where is God when, when you know, the wheel falls off the tricycle? Where is all this? He's telling us, first of all, he states, God's perspective of time is vastly different than humanity's, right? Uh, we see this based on several things. First of all, he highlights God's timetable is not humanity's timetable. <laughs> uh, time is irrelevant in one sense, and yet he's involved in time. So it's not as if it's insignificant. He created it. He's in it. Um, you know, you, what? well, look at Psalm 90. There's an Old Testament text. Uh, one day is a thousand. It's not something that is new in Scripture. And I believe Peter is referring to this psalm. Psalm 90 is very significant to our study. I've mentioned this before. When a New Testament writer cites an Old Testament text, you, you not only want to go back to the Old Testament text, you want to look at the surrounding verses because the context is very important. Psalm 90 is, is a psalm from Moses that talks about God. is uh, He's far greater than anything that the human can produce, uh, and there's a day coming. Look what it says in Psalm 90. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting, you turned men back into dust. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. Do you notice, by the way, he, he's alluding to not only creation, but the flood, the very thing Peter has already talked about earlier on, as demonstration that God was intimately involved when he created it, intimately involved when he brought the first destruction, and there's a third or a second destruction coming, which is fire, not water. The text goes on, it says, For we have been consumed by your anger. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sin in light of your presence. We're going to see that today in this text we just read, that, that when judgment comes, nothing can hide. It'll all be exposed. In verse 10, as the days of our life that contain 70, if you're lucky, 80, uh, so some in the room, you know, hey, that's uh, the, the Mishnah, the Jewish codified law says if, if you get 90, you have a bowed back, so, and 100 is really impressive. Um, it says, yet the pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days. There it is. And Peter said, listen, a thousand years is nothing to God, the eternal almighty one. 
right? And so you, you wonder where this is that he, he hasn't judged yet? Oh, it's coming. It's nothing to him. It is imminent to the Lord's timetable, right? Uh, Schreiner in his commentary says, the lives of human beings are short and frail, but God does not weaken or frail with the passage of time. Uh, last Saturday, we buried my dad's last of five siblings. And at the funeral, you realize life is just so short. Even though she was 87, life is short. It's so brief. And you think, man, it was 30 years ago we buried my grandfather. You know, you, you just go through and you think, it seemed like that was yesterday. Yeah, it was 30 years ago. You, you just go through all of this. And, and Peter's saying, listen, God's timetable, ah, it's so vastly different. And secondly, it's rooted, his timetable, God's timetable is rooted in patience. Notice what the text says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow concerning the promise. That goes back to verse 4. What is saying, where is this promised return? He's talking about the promise of Christ returning and judging humanity. All right? He said that, that promise that the Lord gave to humanity, uh, he's just being patient. It will be fulfilled. As noted by numerous commentators, divine delay, whether in judgment or for the purpose of salvation, appears with regularity in the Old Testament and in Jewish literature. It's seen throughout Scripture that God is delaying. Look, look at Isaiah 46. Let's look at another text. I know you feel like you're in a sword drill today, but Isaiah 46. Let's look at this passage. Start. That's, I, I have verse 13 in your notes, but I want you to start at verse 8. Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and be assured. Now, this is God talking, by the way, so it's red letters. <laughs> Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There it is. And then he says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. How does this Second Peter 3 end this little section in verse 13? In which righteousness dwells, resides. That's what we're looking to. And it says, my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion, my glory for Israel. There it is, right? It, 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 it's all coming together. And when Peter highlights it, listen, he's not slow concerning his promise. That's seen throughout Scripture. And the, the reason for all of this, it's clear. The purpose is for opportunities to repent. Well, that last line there in verse 9, which is so profound. Again, not a foreign concept to Scripture, is it? The idea that God is delaying so that people can repent. There's two texts, Joel 2, 12 through 13, and 1 Timothy 2. Would someone read Joel 12 or Joel 2, 12 to us and 13? These two verses. Someone read that to us? Loud and clear.
slow to anger. Isn't that great? There, another text is 1 Timothy, New Testament. 1 Timothy 2. Who's got this one? Verse 4. Great. He desires all people to be saved. And so here you see an opportunity for individuals to repent. Right? So Peter says, listen, (laughs) the false teachers are saying, you know, God isn't really involved and this is all a joke. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Number one, his timetable is not our table. Number two, God is patient and he's delaying for a purpose, and the purpose is so that you could repent. Top of the next page, I highlight again the idea that the Old Testament has numerous events where we see God delaying. Give me an example from the Old Testament where we see God's hand of judgment being held back so that people could repent. Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example. It's already been listed. I can't help but think... Peter's thinking of that event, even the flood, right? Noah didn't build that ark in a week, <laughs> right? Everyone's sitting around going, what is that eyesore in the backyard? Where's HOA when you need them, right? That's why HOA was developed, well, thanks to Noah, right? What else? Yeah, good. What else? The entire Israelite history? I mean, how many prophets do we need before you get the message right? You you realize that formal idolatry didn't end in Israel's history until the diaspora, until they were hauled away by the Babylonians? After that, they finally learned their lesson. But formal idolatry plagued Israel's history until then. Boom. The judges, right? And if we wanted to, to be a little too convicting, we can think of our own lives, right? I don't know. <laughs> How much longer, Hoffman, it's you're going to keep dealing with the same old issue? I mean, the, the same, God is patient, and again, the text says is so that, that individuals will come to repent. Now, flipping back in your notes to the first page, the quote that I have at the top is very important. Randy Alcorn states it very well in his book, Hand in Hand. The God of the Scriptures is so big, wise, and powerful that He can grant true, meaningful, and real choices to angels and humans alike in a way that allows them to act freely within their finite limits. Yes, God is still sovereign. God already knows, but he's, he's also given us a choice. Without inhibiting His sovereign plan in any way, and indeed using their meaningful choices, even their disobedience in a significant way to fulfill His sovereign plan, i.e. Pharaoh and the whole Exodus event, right? Count. Choice is a bittersweet gift. Those in heaven will always be grateful they had it and will have had it always with no fear of sin or condemnation. Those in hell will always regret they didn't exercise it differently. There is a tension here. There is a mystery. And scholars have leaned one side or another in debating this. And and I'm not going to get into that today. But God in His sovereignty still allows for human choice. And He wishes none should perish. 
Does he call us before the foundation of the world? Yes. How do those two go in hand in hand? Write a book and tell us. Uh, join the club because it's a mystery. It's a tension in the text. There's no doubt about that. But Peter's saying, listen, God, to the false teachers, you, you missed the whole point. And notice, by the way, he's not addressing, as we stated in verse 8, he's not addressing the false teachers. He's addressing the church. Just, listen, God is longing for you. And why? Because, verse 10, the day of the Lord is coming. It's interesting what he states about the day of the Lord. It is sure, and he gives us three facts in the text. In verse 10, the first of these is that it will be unexpected. The idea of it coming as a thief, if you're saying, that sounds really familiar in Scripture, you're right. Even Jesus talked about it coming as a thief. Uh, Paul does as well, and I've given you some references there in reference to this idea that it's unexpected. It could occur at any time. Secondly, it's extensive. I mean, burn, baby, burn, right? And this isn't purify my heart, oh Lord. <laughs> This is one of condemnation uh, as the earth is uh, demolished, it's burned up. In fact, it says, notice that uh, here the Net Bible has the celestial bodies will melt away. This is in verse 10. Does someone have a different rendering in your English version? It says, the heavens will disappear with horrific noise and the celestial bodies will melt away. The elements. The Net Bible has rendered that the celestial bodies. Some have taken the elements to refer to angelic hosts, which doesn't fit. Um, I, I see this more as an all-encompassing notion. Uh, I'm going to disagree a little bit with the Net Bible here. And I put this there in your notes, that since elements are placed in contrast with the heavens, they should therefore, and I'm quoting Green, be understood as the totality of the material world. Everything that's in it. So not only the heavens, but the earth itself. It's one of the reasons why we haven't need a new heaven and a new earth. Because uh, this, this sucker is going to be fried. Right? Yeah, so you're going to have global warming. Yeah, that's right. Global warming like we've never seen it to all our environmentalists. Yeah, doesn't mean we don't take care of this world. I, I'm, I can hear that. I'm not saying that. But this sucker is going to be gone. You know, um, there was no U-Haul with my aunt's uh, hearse, right? She didn't take anything with her. She's done. And what she leaves is a legacy, and, and that's it. And, and the third thing that we see, it's unexpected, it's extensive, and it is exhaustive. It, 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 the text says it, everything will be laid bare. Did you catch this in verse 10, the latter part? Uh, it, it's a judicial term. Uh, Clement, an early church father, early church father, a church father is a church leader, in the early church, he states, and I quote it from Second Clement, but you know that the day of judgment is already coming as a blazing furnace, and some of the heavens will dissolve, and the whole earth will be like lead melting in a fire, and then the works of men, watch this, the secret and the public will appear. That's why Satan loves secrecy. <laughs> That's what George was talking about. Satan loves that. 
he doesn't want light shed on, on all issues. Well, there's a day coming when the Lord will take care of that. Because <laughs> it's all going to be laid bare. Yeah, Dick. I see this as a full universe. All that, that it entails, all of God's creation. It, it, it ties back to earlier about God creating this world by His Word. And with that same Word, uh, destruction will be brought. Well, in the latter part here, in verses 11 through 13, and some throw verse 10 with the latter part. Uh, you could throw verse 10 either way. In fact, I, I messed up in your notes. In letter A, I have it going through verse 9. And then letter B, I go through verse 11. So verse 10, I didn't even put it in your notes in the outline. Uh, it probably should go with the first part. Verses 11 through 13 then, we, we deal with what is our response then to all of this? How, how do we respond to this? And Peter's very clear. He says, first of all, our conduct, verse 11, should be one of holiness uh, and godliness. That's what, in light of this, it should motivate us to live godly lives. This is not foreign, is it, to our study of this book. Let me give you a couple passages. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I pray this, he says, because His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for what? Life and godliness. The term we talked about means good worship what's worship it's 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 intimacy with god the very thing the false teachers are denying they're saying yeah you you can't have intimacy with god because he's not involved in this world and and peter flips that upside on his head he says no 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 we have the great privilege of having intimacy with god through worship it's beautiful Right? Look at verse 15 and 16 of verse 1, or chapter 1. Chapter 1, 15 and 16. He says, Indeed, I will make every effort that after my departure you have a testimony of these things. We didn't follow these concocted fables. This is true what I'm telling you. So that we may know to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is intimate or uh, imminent. It's coming. And, and, and thus we need to live a life of godliness. He then says something very interesting. He says we need to live a life of expectancy. And look at this. Go back to the text. Look at uh, 2 Peter 3. And he says in verse 12, while waiting for and hastening the coming day. It's just the opposite of the false teachers who have blatantly disregarded it, have, have uh, rejected it. He says, no, 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 we need to have open arms to this. The question I have in your notes is how do we as believers hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? How do we hasten it? Evangelism, what else am I hearing? That's usually the answer. Matthew 6, Matthew 6. Well, that, that's, what does Matthew 6 say? What's the Lord's prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I would argue the way that we hasten the day is through prayer. 
Yes, evangelism. Yes, living godly lives. I understand all that. But first and foremost, I would argue, as Christ taught us, it is one based out of prayer. Lord, come. And the church has been praying that for 2,000 years. Yeah, how does the... How does the New Testament end? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? Well, yeah, I understand that. And I understand the last being saved and all that. But I would argue the, the, the fundamental issue here is, being, is that we're praying. It's, Lord, hasten, Come. The longing for that day, right? David, yep. Pray for, how do you pray for that day when you have unsaved relatives that you don't really want him to come before they have a chance? So if somebody 30 years ago had prayed that prayer, I wouldn't be here. It's hard to pray that prayer given our desire to see our loved ones come into the kingdom. Jerry's comment is, well, it's a hard prayer to pray when I have unsaved or... Uh, unsaved family or friends that don't know the Lord. Um, and that's why I think the prayer should be driving us to evangelize. It should give us a greater awareness that this day is coming and judgment is looming for those who don't know you. Um, so I would argue the prayer should be driving us uh, to a greater awareness of their eternal state. You know, that's the whole point, isn't it? Earlier on in, in verse 9, there are those who suffer from the Jonah syndrome. <laughs> uh, they really don't want to pray for someone to come to repentance. And yet, that's the heartbeat of the Lord, isn't it? Think about the whole scene with Nineveh. A bunch of louses, and yet God was so concerned about them, as well as the cattle, according to Jonah. It's an interesting one, right? But that's a whole other topic. But uh, prayer, reality, knowing that it's coming. Well, let's go on. Let's look at the text here. And he says, you know, our, our role is to live holy lives. You know what's interesting? Conducting our lives in holiness and godliness is bookended. Verse 11, verse 10 and verse 12 repeat each other. They talk about eternal judgment. In other words, the focus of this whole passage is verse 11. Knowing this, verse 11, knowing this, verse 12, excuse me, verse, verse 10 and verse 12, 11 is where our focus should be. The command to live holy lives, that's what should be governing us, that's what should be guiding us. And, and the promise is, in verse 13, that we're awaiting a new heavens and a new earth. J.I. Packer, in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, I put that in my top ten books to read. If you've not read Rediscovering Holiness, you need to pick up a copy and you need to sit down and read it. It's an easy read on one front. <laughs> be prepared to be convicted. Packer makes this statement, and it's most profound. A promise is a word that reaches into the future, creating a bond of obligation on the part of the one who gives it and of expectation on the part of the one who receives it. That our mighty Creator should have bound Himself to us, His power fulfilling promise to us. And then he quotes a very great and precious promise, as we see in 2 Peter 1.4, is one of the wonders of biblical religion. Isn't it? Who are we? 
And yet God has made a promise to the church, to the saints, right? I will fulfill this and in which righteousness truly resides and we can be brought into it. Isn't that great? Uh, great quote by Packer. Well, let me give you three things to walk away with this morning. The first of these I've already commented on. Unlike the unbeliever who asks where is God, believers have the opportunity to enter into the presence of the divine king via worship. Psalm 95, it's a text you can read later. He longs for us to be in his presence. I'm all over that this today. <laughs> he, he longs for that, the God of the universe. Second, eschatology is not speculation, rather it's motivation. I got a picture of Steve Davis riding his bike with a bear chasing him. I thought this was great. No. <laughs> Where are you, Steve? There he is. At least he's not wearing his Speedos in that one, and that's good. Uh, motivation should, you know... I wrote in your notes, the stakes are real and they are high. My grandmother used to say it, and she's right. You don't want to be doing that when the Lord comes back. It was to shape you up. But she's right. Um, the in, knowing the end should motivate, and even those that we know that are lost. And then third, as we've talked about as well. The Lord's desire that all should come to repent should encourage us to be salt and light in this world. Put uh, Tom Abernathy on. I saw him. Was he here today? No, he's not. Uh, yeah, there he is. The uh, kids, the program for Bigger Vision and how he's so clear and, and, and Scott helps with that, with the, the gospel. It, it's just exciting to see uh, these, these kids and they look up to Tom in more ways than one. And, uh, you know, here he is sharing the gospel. And I love that. And, and Eugene talking about uh, this Harry that you met. That, that's, that's what we need to be doing, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones states in the bottom of your notes, History says the Bible, first and foremost, is definitely under the control of God. It is not the outworking of blind forces and unseen powers that have no rhyme nor reason. It may not make sense. That's why we run to the Lord for wisdom. And it's a good thing we have all eternity for him to explain it to us because we're going to need it. But he's in charge and he longs for us. There's some additional page for you to work through if you want on your own this week or grab somebody and just go through it. But uh, what a praise, right? So we can stand at a side of a casket and realize, no, this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't it. God's in charge. And his timetable is not ours. Father... Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that's new every morning. Thank you for your long-suffering, your patience. What a comfort to know that the end game, you already know it. You're already there. Lord, and it's sooner than we think. <laughs> From your perspective, it's imminent. And no wonder the New Testament writers talked about it could happen at any moment. And Lord... As your son taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.